This podcast is brought to you by Bruner Communications, your best resource for public speaking, presentation, and storytelling skills. Visit lizbruner.com and take your skills to the next level. My guest today has one of the most healing voices you will ever hear. It served her well as an award-winning television journalist for more than two decades in Boston, and now in this next chapter of her life as an ordained minister, bringing hope and healing to the world. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Live Your Best Life. I'm Liz Bruner, and my guest today is the Reverend Liz Walker of Roxbury's Presbyterian Church. Liz, welcome to the show. It's so wonderful to have you with me today. Thank you. I am honored to be with you, Liz. It's been a while since I've seen you, so this is a great connection. Well, we have met many times over the years out and about in this community. We happen to be on the air at the same time, albeit on competing stations, but that's okay. <laughs> we both right. former, former news anchors in Boston. We have the same first name, and we're both daughters of ministers. I don't know if you knew that or not. I did not know that small world that we live in, no. Yes, small world indeed. You grew up in Little Rock, Arkansas. Your father, as I said, was a minister. Did you ever consider as a child to want to follow in your dad's footsteps and go into the ministry? Absolutely not. I don't know about you, but no, I ran as far as I could from <laughs> this kind of life. Ministry was not in any way in my, you know, in my future, at least in my mind. Uh, it was just, I was one of those typical preacher's kids who just didn't believe any of it. I went to church because I had to, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. <laughs> PK, theological <laughs> offspring, T.O., we have all kinds of names for ourselves, don't we? <laughs> absolutely, in, absolutely. In fact, you've even described that your stepmom was a pious church lady, and you were the polar opposite, a happy heathen. So how did, how did that <laughs> manifest itself? <laughs> well, you know, my father died uh, well, when I was about 12, and so my stepmom then raised my brother and me at the worst time for her because we were both going into puberty and, mm. and very rebellious. And it was back in the days when the times were changing in many ways. And so I was very drawn to the revolution and things that were going on, you know, Martin Luther King and all the things that were going out on out in the country. And that was away from what my mother's plan was for me. She just wanted her daughter, like any mother, to be quiet, to go through her life and get, you know, what she had to get out of school, but things were changing. So I was very different from my mom, my stepmom, but she was wonderful. And I look back, having raised uh, two stepchildren myself and realized how difficult that must have been for her. But she hung in there with us. <laughs> and she got my brother and me through. So yeah, I, uh, you know, I always say God has a sense of humor because Indeed. I'm in the ministry now. And that was not my plan, but it was certainly a plan, I think. Indeed. I think probably you touched on, you know, your interests in Martin Luther King and the revolution. And so at a very early age, you, you witnessed many social injustices and inequities in society. How much of an impact did that have on your decision to ultimately become a journalist first? Uh, well, it's so funny you should say, because that's exactly what led me to journalism. I grew up as I said, I, in Little Rock, Arkansas, and while the, the whole world was changing, uh, school desegregation was kind of the backdrop of my life. When I was in the first grade, people at Little Rock Central High School were desegregating that school, and that was a very chaotic time. Mm. So when you speak of revolution, you speak of, you know, uh, fear and violence and, and, and chaos. 
Martin Luther King was just beginning his movement in the the early mid fifties and the you know early sixties, and those were all the things that were happening as I was kind of growing up. So it absolutely influenced me. This was a time when you know suddenly you were told that you you mattered mm-hmm. outside your immediate family and you had things to do in the world. And so when I went to junior high school, I was interested in writing, but it wasn't until I went to high school that someone saw some potential in my writing. My high school journalism teacher, Charles Lance, I'll never forget it, <laughs> uh, told me that I, that I had some talent and that I should look to writing. And that's what led me into television news. I, I wanted to be a writer at a newspaper, but uh, ended up in television and never looked back. But wouldn't have thought of that had it not been for all the changes that were going on. You you want to do something. You want to say something about what's going on in the world. And journalism is the way to do that. Mm-hmm. And that career took you to Denver, San Francisco, and eventually to WBZ in Boston in 1981. And much was made of the fact that you became the first black woman to co-anchor in an evening newscast. And I think we both have experienced that Boston can be a bit of a tough audience at times. And you've even said that you almost didn't even last. Why? Well, you know, Boston was a tough city. I I didn't come here thinking about, again, I've never had a plan. I've kind of followed, I call them the breadcrumbs of the universe or God's Mm. breadcrumbs. So when I came to Boston, I was leaving San Francisco because my union was on strike. (laughs) So I needed to get a job. And so I came to Boston kind of for, for a temporary thing, not realizing anything much about Boston. But of course, I worked on the weekend uh, news and uh, we had such a good chemistry between Bob Lobel, who was the sports anchor, and me that the television station moved us up. But before that, when I was on the weekend, it was a lonely place and a lonely yeah. situation for me because I didn't know anybody in the city. Uh, the city was still reeling from busing which was what, in the 70s, mid-70s? And so there was a lot of tension in the city and a lot of places that reporters didn't feel comfortable going. And Mm. so it was was rough in that sense. But it changed because of the team that I worked with and then the television station's decision to move us, Bob Lobel and me, from the weekend to the weekday. Mm -hmm. And that's what kind of turned things around for me. Well, and add to that, as some people, at least in the Boston area, know you got pregnant, you were unmarried, and you took a lot of flack for that. How did you handle that? Another one of those moments in my life. That was in 1987. I got to this city in 80 and then was pregnant in 1987. That was pretty wild. I mean, it was um, another God moment, another breadcrumb. Uh, The city just exploded. The country exploded. It was the year that Gary Hart... Oh, yes. who uh, was a former senator from Colorado, ran for president, but also was, uh, you know, he was discovered that he was having an extramarital affair. This was the first story, uh, at least of, of national magnitude, where the press entered into private lives. Yes. Before this, you weren't, we weren't covering those kind of stories. And so my pregnancy, you know, came up after that. And the timing was there. And, and so Gary Hart, and then there was Liz Walker, who had the audacity <laughs> to be pregnant and single. But I was trying to live out my life. I wasn't doing, obviously, I wasn't doing anything to, to get attention or to be a controversy. I was in my own private world in my life. And I, I decided I'd get a, you know, go through with it. I thought I'd be fired. And I had kind of planned for that in my head. 
you know, I'd change my life and do something else. Well, it didn't work like that. The station said, you can stay. We have no problem with, you know, with your personal decisions. But the country kind of exploded around, should a pregnant woman have such a high profile job? Mm. So it was, it was painful in some ways. And in some ways, it was probably one of the the deepest, most, uh, well, certainly having my son was the best thing I've ever done. So that was one thing, but even going through the process and going through the experience was in many ways, uh, very gratifying in the sense that you find out who you are, you Mm -hmm. find out who your friends are, you really find out what's important. You do. And so those were the things that I learned. Yeah. So I got through that and life went on, but it was a it was another moment, let's say. <laughs> another breadcrumb, as you said. Another you, breadcrumb, right. You broke many barriers and you became this iconic figure and you were revered and you were loved by the city. You made this place home. And as the journalist that you were, you traveled the world. There's one trip, one story in particular, that became a very pivotal moment in your life, a trip to the Sudan. What happened on that trip? You know, now that we're talking about this, Liz, it has been extraordinary. I don't think I think about it that much, but that was a trip. I went to cover a group of Bostonians who were going there to investigate allegations of slavery. Again, this is back in the early, well, it was 2000, as a matter of fact. And they had heard that the country of Sudan, which at that time was the largest country in the world, it has since been split into two countries, was in the midst of a civil war. And uh, people were being uh, taken slaves, and it was just this horrible story. And so I wanted to go on the story. I, I quite frankly, did not, I had never been to Sudan, did not know much about that part of Africa. That's in the east and northern part of Africa. But what I saw was so painful and, and so ugly. I had never been in a war zone. I had never seen people who had been marginalized. They had been fighting for decades, mm-hmm. uh, this war, this civil war. And the group of people from Boston actually wanted to help them. So I was blown away that people from one side of the country would go to the other side of the country, not missionaries per se, more human rights and humanitarian work to help support people. And that really touched me. Two of the people who went were ministers from Boston. And it was these two people, Ray and Gloria Hammond, who suggested that maybe my life was changing Mm -hmm. and I would need to do something else. And I think that was a part of it for me. It changed my life. It was that there were people who were suffering in the world and there were people who were willing to do something about this suffering. And so I think that was kind of what I describe as my call to ministry. And our church today is this, you know, it's a social justice church and we work on healing the world in our own way. And that's, that's what we believe ministry really is. Indeed, indeed. How difficult, though, was the decision for you to walk away from television and follow what now you felt called to do? How difficult? Were you really ready to do that when it happened? I think I was very ready to do it. People say that must have been very difficult, but it really wasn't difficult for me. My brother thought I needed to go and see a psychiatrist because he couldn't (laughs) see how anyone would walk away from a six-figure job. But it just seemed to me that the, the needs in the world were greater than what I was doing. I mean, we, as reporters, you know, we cover those stories. Yeah. We, from a distance, we can tell the world what's going on. But it seemed to me that I needed to take a deeper participation in maybe not just reporting the news, but trying to change 
some of the news. So I didn't see it as difficult at all as a decision. It just seemed natural at the time. Now, again, Liz, looking back, you know, it was like, what was I thinking? But at the time, it seemed, you know, it just seemed like the thing to do. I didn't think I wanted to be a preacher so much. I wanted to be, you know, humanitarian, maybe a missionary, because I, I just had not had no idea. The world is just a, such, a, it's not a big place as much as you might think, right. but there's a lot of suffering. There's a lot of pain in the world. Mm-hmm. And I thought I had a responsibility and still do. Yeah. So it wasn't as difficult as you might think. It was exciting. It was the idea that you could actually do something in another part of the world to make a difference was really appealing to me. Yeah. So the Hammonds convinced you to go to Harvard Divinity School. You you graduate with a master's focusing on religion and women's issues. And you co-found a humanitarian organization, My Sister's Keeper, which focuses on economic and educational initiatives for Sudanese women and girls. And it was really the first of its kind in the region. And if I'm understanding correctly, on the very first day of school, there were a thousand girls enrolled. That's amazing. Well, we built a school in the middle of the bush. Now, this was not an overnight activity. It took us seven years after we started traveling to Sudan. After that first trip, Gloria White Hammond, who was kind of my mentor and one of my dearest friends, decided that we should go back and there were things that we would do. And so we went back. We built a relationship with one particular village in the the southern part of South Sudan, uh, the village of Akan. And we supported them in any way they wanted to be supported. We told them we can help you with whatever. They needed everything. Sure. But they asked us to help them build a school. So we took, like I said, several years of trying to figure out what a school would look like in the middle of a bush. Girls are not educated, and as you know, in other parts of the world, especially in a part of the world we call the developing world. Mm-hmm. So in, in, in Africa, and all, all over Africa, of that continent, you have uh, countries where girls are just really eager for education but don't have it. So this was that kind of place. And uh, we built a school which was uh, K through eighth grade for girls. And we built a school to, to house maybe 300 girls. And it was a very basic kind of school. I mean, this was, you know, you build these buildings and you have a place where they can eat and you have classrooms and you, you spend a lot of energy just getting the basics done. Mm-hmm. And the first day the school opened, the word had traveled all over that region and a thousand girls showed up for a school that could only take care of about a maybe 300. Wow. So we realized how desperately people wanted education. Now, our schools remained open for many years, and we continued to support it, even though it wasn't our school. It was their school, and we were trying to help them. But the situation, sadly, in Sudan has really gone down, Mm -hmm. even since they have divided into two countries. And so we hear that the school is no longer active. Now, we don't know that because we haven't been back, but it remained open for at least, I'm going to say, 10 years. That's amazing, Liz. That's um, amazing. Yeah. Oh, and we think gosh. we made some impact by supporting them. And, you know, we, we have no idea. I don't even think we could get back into that part of the country yeah. now because the political situation has gotten much worse. Well, you know what they say, you touch one life and there's that ripple effect and it just spreads out. And you have no idea how many lives you changed and transformed just by whoever those girls were who went to the school for those 10 years. So phenomenal achievement. I just want to really quickly say that was absolutely our theology and our philosophy. You can't do it all, 
But if you can touch one life, you make a huge difference. So you are quite prophetic in saying that because that that's exactly what we did. And that's what, what most good work, I think, is about, you know, just doing the best you can in the way that you can. Absolutely. You've gone from the anchor desk to the pulpit, from sharing stories about this community and from around the world to now sharing stories from the Bible. How do you make the Bible relevant to today for those who, let's say, they might be skeptics or even non-believers? If the Bible didn't teach me something about today, I couldn't be a preacher. I can only look at it as it affects us right now. Mm -hmm. Uh, Everything that I read in the Bible, I can layer it over the world as it is today. Even going to Sudan, I mean, going to a place you don't know the people, you're a stranger. The thing, one of the themes that came out of that journey in Sudan, which was in in the end on an 11-year journey, we worked back and forth between Boston and Sudan, was the idea of hospitality people who didn't have anything because the people in South Sudan are very poor. They live day to day, but they were willing to share everything with us. Well, that's biblical. You know, Mm -hmm. that's that notion of who is my neighbor. That's how I see the world. Mm -hmm. I see the world kind of against the margins of the Bible because it just, it's, you know, there's one story. We're all trying to figure out how to get through life here. Mm -hmm. What does it take and how do we make it? So that's how I look at it. And It's not hard for me to do that. I mean, this global pandemic that we're in right now, to me, is almost biblical because it stopped the world. The world had to stop and reconsider, what are you doing? How are you treating each other? Those are some of the subtexts that come out of the, the situation we've gotten ourselves into. And I look to the Bible for those kinds of stories, and I look to the Bible for the answers. And and a lot of the answer has to do with how we look at each other, how we value mm-hmm. each other, and how we treat each other. Who is my neighbor, and how do I treat that person? And I, I would dare say, and you've probably experienced this with your own parishioners and just people out in the community, people of faith are wrestling with, how is this happening? Why is this happening? And there is tremendous fear in the world right now because we're in this serious crisis. How do you help them get rid of some of that fear? Well, I don't know if you ever get rid of this kind of fear because we don't have a precedence for this, at least in my generation. And certainly my son doesn't in his generation at all. Mm -hmm. But I try to tell people to think about what's important. I think these kind of things, when we are isolated and we only have kind of a virtual connection, when we can't touch each other, it kind of helps you, again, refocus on what's important. Mm -hmm. And that's the thing that I talk about every Sunday. What's important to you? We live in a world where people don't take care of people, and a few seem to have everything, and most don't have anything. And that's out of whack. That's out of balance. Mm -hmm. What the Bible teaches us and what we have to figure out now while we're all stopped and and, and our economy is is, really in a horrible tailspin and and our health is, is really being questioned. We have to stop and really reconsider how we can take care of each other better. And I think a lot of people are doing that. It doesn't matter what your religion is. Mm -hmm. We're all forced to think about that. Now, some people could care less, Mm -hmm. but that's always the way humanity has been. Those who care try to figure out a way to change things. Governor Baker invited you to be on the COVID-19 advisory group. What is your role and what do you want people to know 
Well, the COVID-19 vaccine advisory group is really specifically working on how to distribute the vaccine Mm. for this pandemic equitably. And because one of the biggest issues is who would get it first, who stands in line first. So we uh, have worked for several weeks, uh, I would say months, in trying to decide, and we got very granular, who should get the vaccine Mm -hmm. first. Well, that turned into kind of a biblical theory, too, because we have a text in the Gospel of Matthew called the least of those, Matthew Mm -hmm. 25. And the king says to the people, when you take care of the least of these, you take care of me. So the least of of these, uh, you translate that into the most vulnerable. We decided that we wanted to help the most vulnerable, but to reach them, we'd have to help inoculate the uh, healthcare workers themselves. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it wasn't a Bible class, but it just hit me that what the decisions that that were being made were kind of biblically based. That's not what people were doing, you know, at least not on the surface, but that's what I was thinking. So it was a lot of work because it's not as simple as it may seem. We would work with the doctors. We also wanted to make sure the janitors and the cleaning crew, anyone who had to deal with patients with COVID was susceptible to catching COVID. So then it was the elderly. Then it was, you know, people who lived in communities that there's a lot of socially vulnerable people who don't have money. So we had to go through this whole kind of series of decisions. And we did, and, and people all over the country did. There were these kinds of groups in every state to decide on who would get the vaccine first. We're still working on it. It's been a very difficult job, but again, another one of those breadcrumbs, because for me, it helps me look at how we as a culture and a society value each other. How do you deal with the challenge, though, whether it's within your own community or across the world, as you mentioned, that there are those who are so reluctant and fearful of this vaccine and and aren't sure whether they want to take it. Is there a message that you want to share with the world about that? Well, the only thing I can share is from my perspective, I have seen those who have suffered from COVID-19, not in person because you can't get close, but I watched a woman die on Zoom. Mm. And I got to tell you, I watched her with her family who couldn't get to her. We watched on a computer. And the sound of her breathing was the kind of the loudest thing, because that's all you've got is sound, really. When you've got a picture, but you can't reach through it. And that was one of the, the hardest things I've ever had to do. And I've seen plenty of people die. But to look at the anguish in, in her family's face and, and to see what she was going through, and I believe that she didn't necessarily have to be there. The situation mm-hmm. has just gotten out mm-hmm. of hand. From what I understand, it's horrible. Even the people who survive it say, this is a tough way to go. Mm-hmm. So that's all I can do is tell you what I've seen and what I've heard and the people I've talked to. And I have talked to many scientists and uh, doctors on this committee that the governor put together. And these are really hardworking, earnest people. They believe the vaccine will make a difference. And I trust them. Mm-hmm. So I ask my community to trust me. Mm. COVID-19 has certainly challenged everyone, to say the least. But Like you, I I hope that it has strengthened us in some way, too. And your voice, Liz, is as important today as it was when you first arrived in Boston and became such an inspiration for young women. What does it mean to you today to live your best life? It is an honor, Liz, to be in this position, though this is a very difficult position right now. 
uh, working with people who are trying to end this virus. There are so many heroes in this situation now, the doctors and the nurses and the people in the grocery stores and the guy who comes and picks up your trash and the mailman and people who really kind of put their lives on the line to help the rest of us. And so for me to be a part of this little committee as a minister, as a person who kind of stands, you know, for trust in my community, for me to be able to say, can I help you make a decision? Can I give you some information? That's a real honor. I don't pretend that I have any overwhelming voice in this, but I I did want to be a part of it Mm -hmm. uh, because we have a lot of work to do to rebuild things now in our country. Living my best life is giving my best. And I'm of the age now, (laughs) I have to laugh, because I'm no longer that spring chicken I was when I first came to Boston. So for me to have value now at this point in my 60s is, is crucial for me. So to be able to be a part of this is living my best life. I want every day to count, whether it's on TV or just between that stranger and me. I want it to matter. I want to do something that, you know, that good in the world. So this gives me the opportunity to be a part of that. And for me, this is the best thing I can do. I can think of nothing, nothing more rewarding than being a part of rebuilding our country after this devastating pandemic that has hit us all. So I'm honored and humbled to be a part of it. Well, Reverend Liz, you are a light in this world spreading hope, and people can hear you preach all around the world, actually, at RoxburyPresbyterianChurch.org. Again, that's RoxburyPresbyterianChurch.org. And I guess the good news out of all this pandemic is everybody's services are online as much as we miss being in person and hope that we can get back to that. But people have an opportunity to hear you on Sundays, which is just wonderful. And I have to say, I've heard Liz speak many times and preach, and she's pretty awesome. <laughs> so thank you, Liz, for <laughs> oh, joining me today. Thank you for having me, Liz, and the best to you. And thank you to all of you for tuning in. And may you be safe, healthy, and find hope and light, even in the darkest of times, in order to live your best life. Until next time, be well. This podcast is brought to you in part by Fast Twitch Media, helping people tell their stories and giving them worldwide reach. The future is in the cloud and Fast Twitch Media can take you there. Be your best digital self. Check out fasttwitchmedia.space.